2: Courage involves facing our fears, but it's also about resilience, grit, and having a built-in BS detector and knowing when and how to use it. Joining us today to talk about how we can heighten our natural instincts to move from fear to fearlessness is Evie Pompouris, author of the book, Becoming Bulletproof, Protect Yourself, Read People, Influence Situations, and Live Fearlessly. Evie is a former Secret Service special agent who is the recipient of the United States Secret Service Medal of Valor Award for her heroism on 9-11. She has been part of the protective details for former Presidents Obama, both Bushes, Clinton, and Ford. She co-stars on Bravo Spy Games. Welcome, Evie. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So, Evie, let's begin by talking about your amazing career. What was your path to joining the Secret Service?
3: You know what? I didn't have a traditional path. I know there's many people when they're growing up, this is kind of their dream. They know exactly what they want, and I, I, I didn't have that. I didn't have anybody in a, who had been in law enforcement or or worked even in, in in the Secret Service or in the federal government. But I always had this. I had two things. I had a drive to help people, and I had a drive to not be full of fear. I grew up in a very low-income na- neighborhood, government-subsidized housing. My parents were were immigrants from another country, and we dealt with a lot of struggles and a lot of crime. And I think, you know, traditionally when you grow up, one or two things will happen to you in life. You either become more afraid or you be, you, you rebel against fear, and you say, you know what, I'm done with it, and I'm done with seeing people around me being hurt and being vulnerable. And I think that that is really in the core, what led me to go into this career, to protect other people, to serve other people, and, and by proxy, to become a stronger, more resilient human being.
2: Do you think your upbringing helped you be more intuitive or have a little bit more street smarts so you could get the job done?
3: Mm, that's a really great, great question. There, you know, There's been some research where they looked at kids who grew up in inner cities. I grew up in New York City and uh, in a, a rougher area. And they found that kids that grow up in inner cities, and in rougher environments, tend to be more resilient later on in life than those kids who grow up in more protective environments. And I think that the, the, the crux of it is when you grow up in a difficult environment, you're, you're used to dealing with problems and adversities. And so from a young age, you begin to problem solve. You begin to start figuring out how to solve an issue or problem. But when you're too cocooned, when you're not dealing with a lot of obstacles when you're grown up and you're, you're, you're extremely shielded, it, it, it does you a disservice. Because now, later on in life, when things do happen, you don't get that job, you get fired, you break up in a relationship, you're not getting the things you thought you should get, you struggle. And then you get into the, this depression place and you think I'm not, you know, it, 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 it attacks you internally. So I, I do think that struggle is even at a young age, is an important thing because it helps us.
2: And that's been a debate that's been going on. I mean, I'm middle age, and so when I grew up, we weren't mollycoddled at all. I mean, we learned how to take our lumps in life. And I think sometimes we're not doing our children a service when everyone gets a trophy for playing Little League or something. We're not teaching them to be resilient.
3: No, you're not. I mean, and this is the thing, like when I went went through training, it was very clear. You, You pass training, you don't pass, you go home they don't want you it's the u.s secret service like we have no time and they even had a you know um competition within us like who gets number one and there was only one number one there is no number it's whoever gets number one gets number one you have to perform so i think when we take that element out then if everybody gets a trophy why should i perform why should i work so hard we're all equal you want fairness and equality, and a fundamental level is extremely important but you you want to allow that person to feel that they are working hard to accomplish something to achieve something and when we we hand everything to another person especially at a young age again it's like how are you helping them in the long term because when you're not around and they have a struggle they're not going to know what to do they're going to they're, they're it's going to be completely new to them so as a kid especially at a young age when you're dealing with obstacles you're dealing with them in an environment where there's not that much to lose to some extent, whereas later on in life when you're going to get a job or you get fired, where there's a, a bit more at stake, that's going to be more soul-crushing, so to speak, because you've not, you've not dealt with this. You've not dealt with rejection. People fear doing things out of fear of failure, out of rejection. That is the best thing you can do. You want to be more resilient? Get out there and fail. Get out there and get rejected, because then you're going to be that person who keeps going. The other person's going to say, you know what? Don't like how this feels. This felt horrible. Completely soul crushed me. I'm never doing it again. And then they get nowhere.
2: Evie, the title of your book is Becoming Bulletproof. Can you describe to us what a bulletproof person looks like?
3: A bulletproof person is someone who is trying to always become resilient. I, I, I titled the book Becoming Bulletproof because I wore a bulletproof vest. A vest is made out of Kevlar. Now, Kevlar is made out of fabric, really thin layers of fabric. And when you put the fabric together, one layer on top of another layer, on top of another layer, it makes your vest and it makes it resilient. Now, I I made the book similar to that because I'm giving you all these layers of fabric. And when you put them all together, these chapters, that creates your own bulletproof vest. It's supposed to shield you from harm, from problems. It's supposed to protect you. Now, at the same time, though, you're not completely protected. Your legs are exposed, your arms are exposed, your head's exposed. So when I put my vest on, I always knew, like, hey, I'm as protected as I can be, but I'm also vulnerable, and that's okay. Because we have to accept our vulnerabilities and be okay with them rather than fear them. And with the title Becoming, I, wrote it, I put Becoming Bulletproof because we're always becoming, even myself. Every day I'm looking to learn, to be better, to be stronger. We are becoming a better version of ourselves constantly. You know, I have the saying, "Is the day you think you know everything, it is the day you become obsolete. And so it's having that mindset. So it's being strong, trying to be strong, but then being okay with where you are vulnerable, because we must be okay with that. And then to constantly pursue resilience, to constantly say, okay, well, you know what? I just messed this up. I didn't handle this the best way. Now, how do I overcome it, rather than saying, I'm never going to do that again, I'm going to stay away from this, and living in a very fear-based mindset. You know, Effie,
2: you're right, because I like when you say pursue resilience, because it really is something that you have to continually work on. My life up until middle age had been pretty easy. I mean, it was the, the textbook of what a life should be. Great family, went to college married my college sweetheart, two kids, everything was in order. And then about 10 years ago, everything fell apart. I dealt with my father going through cancer and and watched him pass away. My mother died. My sister died. My 23-year marriage ended. My son left for college. And most of those things outside of my father happened within six months in my life. And I understand because I had to learn how to be resilient. I had to make that decision that I wasn't going to be a victim so from all of that I founded two companies I started this brand I'm doing this work and anything is possible from that adversity but you're absolutely right it's something you have to work at and choose to do
3: It's a choice you know it's interesting my father my father just passed uh, several months ago from cancer and you know I'm sitting there and I'm like okay I have no choice he's gonna go I can't I can't stop that but I have a choice in how he goes. And I think it's when life throws things our way, when we think, oh, my gosh, this is happening, how could this be happening, and we feel hopeless. In every moment of our lives, you always have a choice, and you can choose. It may not be the choice you want to make, right? The choice would be, like, I don't want my father to die. It's like, well, that choice I don't have, so I'm not going to waste time on that. But I have a choice in how I let that happen and what I can do for when that happens. You know, in the beginning of the book, I open up, with my story and my experience with September 11th. And I, I talk about, you know, when I was there, when I was at the towers, and I remember when people started jumping from the towers. You don't really see this now in the news. They don't, they don't show it. And, and I understand why, of course. And there was a lot of people jumping, a lot. It wasn't one or two people. It was, it was a lot of people. And I remember watching, and I, I thought to myself, what kind of choice you're making in that moment where you're saying, I, I'm going to die. I have no choice. But I can choose, though. Even in that moment of hopelessness, I can choose to jump. And they're making a choice. And even in that moment, even in this moment where you think, wow, what a weak, hopeless moment. No. You you find power in that moment because you're saying, I still have power over the outcome. Maybe not in the way I'd hoped, but I still have power. And I think that's where if you can see through that, so like what you went through, When you can see all these things happening to you, you can say, I can be a victim, or I can just surpass that. And I don't even want to say the word survivor. You can crush it. You can thrive in it. You don't want to survive it. You want to go beyond. Because in every crisis, you can find opportunity. And What is that, and what does that look like?
2: We're all experiencing really challenging times right now, and just about everyone has been caught off guard. What do you think we should all be doing that can better prepare us for the next crisis?
3: I think, well, you know, we might be looking at another wave coming in as far as the pandemic. And I think you should be doing what you need to do, which is wearing your face masks, doing the things that you can do. But then also protecting yourself mentally. A lot of the stress people are going through, too, is self-induced. So if you're sitting watching the news, and I I study journalism, I do the news. But if you're sitting watching the news 24 hours a day, just watching... The pandemic, 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 the riots, everything that's happening. If this is all you are consuming, that is what you become. You're going to be that way. You have to create boundaries for yourself and say, I'm going to watch the news. I'm going to be informed. I'm going to participate in however I want to participate in, in, in anything that's happening, whether it's a Black Lives Matter movement or whatever I want to do. But then you have to find space where you step away and you say, I need to separate from this because this is not healthy for me to see all this stuff put your social media away, stop watching all these videos. I don't care how strong you are, even the most resilient person, even myself, I, cre- I it will affect me. It, you absorb that energy. And sometimes, you know, if I have to go to somebody's house or a friend's house, and I see I walk into that home, and they're very panic based, and or if I need to connect with someone, I do what I need to do. And then I leave immediately, because I know this person's energy, this person's thinking is affecting me. And I'm in a a good place. I understand. Yes, there's a pandemic. I understand. So many things are happening. I control what I can control. I I give also what I can because giving is a huge thing. Is when you can help in a meaningful way, that is also a great tool to overcoming any any, any difficulties finding meaning. But at that point, you want to create like a barrier around you and be like, who you're going to let in and what you're going to let in. So a lot of it is not just the pandemic or what's happening. A lot of it is you. You're letting this in. You're letting this affect you. You're letting this turn your world upside down.
2: And that's you. the part that most people forget—just how powerful we each are. You know, a lot of people think that they're a victim, but they're not. We have so much power.
3: You have a choice. Even when when the pandemic first started, I remember everyone being like, "Oh my god, oh my god!" And I was like, "All right, you no, know, it's happening. Face mask, washing hands." And you know, I thought about how can I also contribute as well. And and when we can help other people, it's so powerful. Not just for helping them, from a selfish perspective, truly, it makes you feel better. Science shows it. And I remember I thought to myself, you know, what can I do? And I was like, well, you know, maybe donuts and coffee. Who doesn't love donuts and coffee? And I did something as simple as calling up Dunkin' Donuts and saying, listen, I want to help first responders. These, these people are getting crushed. And what, would you guys want to team up? Every morning I'm going to hit up, you know, uh, I'm going to go to hospitals, emergency rooms, um, the National Guard, law enforcement, all the police precincts, these guys were working around the clock. I was like, just to deliver donuts and coffee. And we went to, to, we went to over 150 locations in New York.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And something small like that, it gives you a sense of, like, strength and power and contribution. And I would come home and everyone around me is panicking. I'm like, I feel good mm-hmm. because I'm also part of the solution. I'm not just a taker. And so many of us just take
2: Amy, you've seen so many things in your life and in your career, from protecting presidents to what you described on 9-11. How are you able to manage all of those things that you've seen and yet not become jaded about the world?
3: Uh, But but you can become jaded, and it's just self-assessment, knowing that you're becoming jaded. And that absolutely would happen to me from time to time. It happened to me a lot when I would do – I did polygraph interviews – and So imagine this. You're in a room and you're talking to someone who's sexually assaulted, raped, a little girl. And you're spending hours with this person talking. And think about doing those on a consistent basis. When you're talking to people and they're telling you, you're seeing the worst in humanity. And you leave that room and you think, oh, my gosh, like this is the world. And you begin to see people in a more cynical way. And, in fact, one study showed that the, the predominant trait Trait in law enforcement overall is cynicism because they're always dealing with the worst of humanity they tend to see people and humanity at its worst you have to catch that you have to catch yourself so and I do that from time to time if I start seeing the world or the people around me and especially now I'm in the TV entertainment business which I would argue is a really <laughs> really difficult business you know you're dealing with so much deception so much dishonesty it's just such a weird world to navigate and even then, you know, I catch myself. I'm like, I need to stop thinking everybody's t- doing something wrong because there is good in humanity. You just want to be cautious. Cautious is good when you see red flags and certain things, and I talk about that in my book. That's when your your spidey sense should go up and be like, hmm, this doesn't sit right with me, and then you, you, you investigate that further. But you also don't want to judge people. We want to find a balance. You want to have a healthy level of caution, but you also don't want to be jaded in life. And again, you choose to be jaded because sometimes we choose it because it suits us. It suits us. It's me and the rest of the world. Who doesn't love that narrative? And we all know those people. Oh, it's me and everything else everybody's doing to me. And if you can step back and be like, I can't let that be me. I don't want that to be me.
2: So you've mentioned that you've been part of the media. I'm part of the media. We hear so much about... How the media is trying to manipulate people in the world and not just the media, but other people who are who are disseminating disinformation and, and who have their own motives for trying to get others to see things from their point of view. So you teach about how to get your BS meter working and, and to be able to spot these types of things. Is there something that, a a tip or a strategy that you could give our listeners that can help them spot it? Like, is there just something other than having that intuitive feeling? Is there a red flag that usually indicates that someone is trying to manipulate
3: you? Look, if we're talking about the media, these are two things you should ask yourself. Who is this person and why should I listen to them? Always question where your information is coming from. My mother, who is still alive, every time she sees something on Facebook, she's like, look, 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 <laughs> read this. <laughs> and I'm like, who, who, who wrote this? But she sees it as fact. I was like, and I have to sit her down. I'm like, you have to question who's writing this and what their motive is. And there was one case where she read some blog, and she, and it was written so well. It sounded so professional. And then we were able to, you know, using my investigative experience, I did some looking on the Internet, some diving in, and we found some guy in his pajamas is writing it in the middle of nowhere <laughs> with no experience. And I'm like, this is who wrote it. We actually got a picture of the guy. Like, who is he? This is who's writing this stuff. So you really, again, it's on your own to filter out what you hear. And then really assess it. I teach criminal justice and criminology as an adjunct lecturer. And the first day of class, I tell my students, I give you the facts and you decide. Because we're in a world where everybody is telling us what to think and feel. Everywhere. And know that. Know that everybody has some sort of agenda to some degree, and you have to decide what you're going to consume and what is somebody's opinion, conjecture, or fact. Is what I'm hearing conjecture or is what I'm hearing fact? That's how you assess that, and then you make your own decisions, and I think that's so important. Even in the media, You know, being in news and having been on news, I, 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 I'm so thoughtful, and I try very much to be like, look, I'm going to have a different perspective on this than somebody else's, and I have to be thoughtful in how I relay my information because we try to make everybody think like me, think like me and it's just like no, take the facts and think like you don't let other people tell you how you should think or feel because we lose our individuality we, use, we lose our ability to process and think about things in a thoughtful way and we just follow herds we follow the herd, we follow one herd goes this way, the other herd goes that way it's like, it's like think for yourself
2: The book is Becoming Bulletproof, Protect Yourself, Read People, Influence Situations, and Live Fearlessly. If you'd like to get more information about Evie and her work, you can visit eviepamporus.com or as always, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com, which stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. Evie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
5: Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to primohealthsolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best.
2: Hi, this is Joan Herman. your health. Joining me today is Dr. Katherine Berndorf, co-founder and medical director of the Motherhood Center, a treatment center in New York City for pregnant and new moms experiencing anxiety and depression. She specializes in treating women before, during, and after pregnancy, as well as at other times of transition in their lives. Dr. Berndorf is an associate professor of psychiatry at Cornell. She was a regular mental health columnist for Self Magazine and has appeared on numerous television programs, including the Today Show, Good Morning America, MSNBC, and CNN. She is the co-author of the new book, What No One Tells You, A Guide to Your Emotions During Pregnancy and Motherhood. She's here today to discuss when you don't have feelings for your newborn. Welcome, Dr. Berndorf. Thanks for joining
4: us. Thanks, John. Glad to be here.
2: So, Catherine, when we have a baby as mothers, We believe that we will fall deeply in love with this child and and that we'll experience those feelings the minute we set eyes on the baby. But sometimes that doesn't happen. Why is that the case?
4: I think for many women, there's this expectation that they're going to fall madly in love with with this new child and that there's a pressure actually to feel that way, right? That If you expect it and you've heard it and you see it in social media and on TV and all around, you're setting yourself up to have a very particular experience that doesn't happen frequently. And it doesn't make you a bad mother or a bad person or unloving in any way, shape or form. You've never met this baby, right? They've been a fantasy in your head, even if as they were gestating in your body you know, you, you have to get to know them. That deep love that people expect to feel is a setup for for feeling defective and deficient. That's actually
2: very interesting because it goes against what most of us believe. And, and so you, you use the word frequently in that. So not having those feelings
4: then could be considered more "quote unquote" normal. You got it. That's exactly. It's funny you say it that way because, you know, upwards of eighty percent of women will have what's called the postpartum blues, right? The baby blues, which we think happens because you're at you know at the end of pregnancy, you're at your highest levels of progesterone and estrogen and hormones that are you know, surging throughout the body. And then they you go through the process of labor and then delivery. And a few days after that, you, during those few days after you had the baby, right, you can see, oh, I've lost weight because the baby's come out, but you're losing fluid. And, and these hormones are shifting and plummeting, right? You're going from the highest levels to the, the, the lowest levels. And and it's that, that difference between the high, high and the low, low of the hormones that puts you into this kind of hormonal and also mood sensitivity tailspin. And that's what defines and describes the blues. And it's happening also at that time. One, you're supposed to be falling in love with your kid when you feel sort of you know these ups and these downs. And so to your very good point, I would say to people, you're the unusual person who falls madly in love with her baby.
2: When you do go through this, is it common to have outsiders say things like, what's wrong with you? You're supposed to love your baby.
4: Does that just fuel the oh, fire? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Perfect. Perfect question. It, it, it absolutely does. It makes, it, it makes us feel worse. It makes us feel like we are, maybe we are defective, that the, the person on the outside doesn't get what's happening on the inside for us. The outside and the inside don't match up. And when that's the case, it's often missed. And so unless you're telling someone, they're not going to know it.
2: So, Catherine, what do you advise when we're going through all of these physical and emotional changes? What can we do to move through this and to manage them?
4: Well, I, I hate to, to say it's our responsibility and put the onus on, like, the new mom, because that's a very difficult um, you're in a diff- at a difficult time. But if you can say how you feel, speak up when you're down or, you know, speak the secret. Don't be scared to say how you feel because that will help diffuse and relieve and, and get you on your way to feeling better, believe it or not, if you share that. One other thing I'll, I'll, I'll say to those on the other side, right, not, so not for the new mom, but those around a new mom, look at them in the eye. And say, How are you? And just wait, just pause, hold the gaze, and really mean what you're asking. And it's such a powerful and, believe it or not, simple thing to do that really says to the other person, I want to know how you feel. I mean what I'm asking. Are you okay? Are you good? Because if you are, that's great. But if you're not, I want to know. Catherine, are there
2: any signs that someone should be aware of that would tell them that this is more than the normal baby blues and it might be time to seek professional help? There
4: are many, but they're not always easy to spot. So the baby blues are, are not a consistent or persistent state. They typically happen a few days after birth till a, a couple weeks after and during that time they're not happening sort of permanently that whole time is not only the baby blues right it happens in moments of hypersensitivity or as we say mood lability really high or really low or you're crying while you're laughing at the same time it's this weird mix of quote hormonal feelings where you just kind of feel off but highly raw And that's not every minute of those two weeks, but it's moments during that that can feel very profound. But then you recover and you're like, okay, and then you go on with your day or your life or whatever. When those feelings or those moments continue to add up or crescendo or um, happen more frequently, and then they're going on beyond two weeks or three weeks, you're talking about something else but when it goes on and persists and there's a sense of hopelessness or effortfulness that doesn't make sense or fatigue that's to the bone and not just because you're not sleeping when the because you're a new mom or um or your appetite's off or you're you're feeling like you know, life is sort of bleak and it's black and white as opposed to having any color in it. Then you're starting to talk about depressive symptoms and also depressions in the postpartum can look very anxious. So you might be, you know, keyed up or just really overly vigilant or super cautious in a way that's not allowing you to socialize or it's all these words and things or experiences that really are telling you something more is going on.
2: The book is What No One Tells You, A Guide to Your Emotions During Pregnancy and Motherhood. If you would like to get more information about Dr. Berndorf and her work, you can visit themotherhoodcenter.com. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us and for bringing awareness to this common problem. Thank you, Joan. We'll be right back. In today's supercharged do-it-now world, convenience is key. Now you can listen to Conversations with Joan at a time that's best for you. Simply visit your favorite podcast site, search for Conversations with Joan, and subscribe. New shows drop every Monday. You can also access the podcast through our website, CYACYL.com. Start your week on a positive note. Listen to Conversations with Joan.
1: In a moment, cancer changed our lives forever.
2: At this moment, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital is saving lives with pioneering research and care. And we'll never have to pay St. Jude for anything ever.
0: At this moment, she wants to be in her own bed.
2: I want to be back at school with my friends.
6: I want to be outside playing.
2: Please take a moment and visit stjude.org today.
1: This is Arkansas, New Jersey, New York City.
2: Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. It's estimated that more than six million cats and dogs enter U.S. shelters every year. That's a staggering statistic. That according to our next guest, Lisa Lange, isn't likely to change until we can stop the flood of unwanted cats and dogs. Lisa is the Senior Vice President of Communications for People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. She is here today to talk about the overpopulation crisis and to share steps that can be taken to improve the quality of life for animals. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining us.
7: Oh, thanks so much for having me on. So, Lisa, can you
2: explain to our listeners why there are so many dogs and cats in shelters?
7: Yeah, there. You know, there are a number of reasons. the 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 number one reason is that they're still breeding. So sometimes, cats, for example, are the are the worst off. Um, it's a lot of accidental breeding. Uh, outdoor cats will have litter after litter after litter if they're not spayed or neutered. Um, some people intentionally breed their dogs and cats, and then there's, of course all the puppy mills and the pet stores. It's also important to note that shelters have animals uh, who were relinquished by people. So sometimes people will purchase a dog, for example, or a cat on impulse and then realize, oh, shoot, this costs a lot of money. It takes time that I don't have. And that's why you see a lot of 2-year-olds, 4-year-olds, 6 year old dogs and cats in the shelters. And there is nothing sadder than seeing an animal who's lived in a home for several years and then has been given up. So for all these reasons, uh, we, we advocate that every animal be fixed, uh, spayed or neutered. It's very easy to do, that no one ever please purchase an animal from a pet store or breeder. And that also, please understand that before you get a cat or dog, understand that it is a responsibility that does take time and does take money. But it is so worth it.
2: So if someone was looking for a pet, what would be the process that that person needs to complete?
7: Yeah. I mean, if you you realize that you have the time and the resources for bringing a cat or a dog into your life, what we would recommend is, you know, look at your lifestyle. If you um, don't particularly like to be outside too much or go, you know, get a lot of exercise, but you do want to get a companion dog, um, you may want to get an older dog, you know, someone who doesn't need to run. There are various uh, mixed breeds and breeds at shelters who need a lot of exercise and those who prefer to be couch potatoes. So understanding that and talking to your local shelter about the various animals they have is the way to go visit your local shelter after you've kind of looked online to see who they have there. Um, And then, you know, go and talk to the people who work at the local shelter. Tell them what your life is like. and, and, And if you want to adopt a cat, um, we advocate you consider getting two so that they have a companion when you're off running errands or going into work whenever we're allowed to return to the office. Um, you know, so just really kind of look at your own lifestyle and and proceed accordingly, but always adopt and never buy.
2: We adopted our family pet. Ginger had been fostered for the first four years of her life. And from what we were told, she was created mostly for those four years and when we got her, she was actually the most loving animal that I could have ever imagined. And, and I like to say that we saved her, but she saved us as well.
7: Yeah, you know, that, and that is so wonderful. And crating is just so difficult for animals because, you know, it goes against... <laughs> we all have a desire for freedom of movement. And when we put animals in a cage, it, it just uh, contributes to all kinds of behavior issues. Our dog... Uh, we don't know exactly what her history was, but she certainly behaves like someone who was confined for years. Things she didn't know how to do, like take a walk on a leash. She didn't know how to use stairs. She didn't know how to jump up, or, or maybe had been punished for jumping up on a couch at some point in in her life. We need to remember that these animals, you know, they have, they love and they want your attention, and they have psychological issues when they're abused like, like this, when they're confined for their lives and they all need loving, caring homes, but there are just too many of them, you know, right now and not enough good homes. So um, it's just so lovely to see when someone will go into a shelter and be up for adopting, for example, an 11 year old cat because this animal probably knew a home of sorts and then it was taken away from them. So to provide a loving home, these animals is key. What happens
2: to a pet that does not get adopted? And what is the usual time span that uh, an animal can stay in a shelter?
7: Oh gosh, you know, it it absolutely varies shelter to shelter depending on the number of animals who come in. So when you see, you know, in, in some of your larger cities, where for example there may not be a good spay neuter ordinance um, or there's a spay neuter ordinance that is not being enforced and so animals are breeding out of control, you're going to see um, <clears throat> more animals euthanized in these shelters because there just simply aren't enough good homes for them. Um, you know, we don't like seeing animals keep uh, I'm sorry, shelters keep animals for years and years and years because it just does such Tremendous psychological damage uh, for these animals, cats and dogs. Um, And that's why, you know, animals are literally dying every single day because we are allowing them to breed. Um, And the fix is so simple by simply always adopting, never buying, and always making sure to spay and neuter animals. We can do away with this problem so, so quickly. But it's up to each city to pass strong stay neuter ordinances and enforce them. And what's more, people who allow their animals to breed or who purposefully breed, they need to be fined for that. Um, And Because when you make it hurt a little bit, when you make it literally cost people, um, then they start to to behave differently. And, you know, animals are paying with their lives. So it's important that, um, you know, we start to find people who who are contributing to this overpopulation crisis.
2: Lisa, how else can our listeners get involved? And are there any good resources that you recommend?
7: Yeah, I mean, in every city, uh, go to your local humane society or animal control and see what they need, see what contributions, what volunteers they need. In your own neighborhood, if you know that there's someone who has an animal that should be spayed or neutered, talk to that person. Maybe even volunteer to take the animal to the vet. Help them find low-cost spay-neuter. Consider subsidizing that spay-neuter or surgery yourself. Also, talk to your council members. This is where change happens on a local level. Make sure you have a spay-neuter ordinance in the town that you live in. Make sure that you have a licensing differential on the books. It's an ordinance that says that if you neuter your dog, you spay or neuter your dog, your license can cost $2, whereas if you don't, it should cost hundreds of dollars. If animals are paying with their lives, the very least people who are causing the problem can do is make it come out of their pocketbook. So they're tons of things that you can do on a local level that make significant differences for the animals in your community and is there a good resource well you can always go to PETA.org for more information but I think locally um, just going to your local animal control or your humane society's website and see what's going on there get involved locally that's
2: where it counts Lisa thank you so much for joining us thanks for having me this is conversations with Joan stay with us we'll be right back Many of us have spent
6: more time video conferencing in the last few months than we ever have. I believe this will lead to more video conferencing in the future. Are you ready? This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures. Video conferencing has become the new way to communicate for businesses, doctor visits... Happy hours with friends and family get-togethers. There are a lot of platforms out there, including new ones added by Facebook and Google, but the majority of people have been using FaceTime and Zoom. Here are three quick tips for making the best of your face-to-face in online meetings. One, Be engaged. There is nothing worse than hosting a meeting of people who either show up late, are eating full meals while we all watch, or who don't show up on video and just have a name or a photo hanging out there. It makes you wonder are they really listening? So if you're going to be on, please be engaged. Two, do a test run. Before you get on a big meeting, jump on that platform if you can and test your speaker and microphone. How do you sound? Is there someplace you can sound better while you're on the video? How do you look? Is there some lighting around that could help illuminate your face so people can see you better? And finally, what are you wearing that can be seen on screen? You would be surprised how wide some of those camera shots really are. Three, be kind. We're not all tech wizards. We forget that we have to unmute our audio when we're talking. Sometimes we don't have have a nice space to sit in and the background isn't really what we want it to be. So be kind to others. The next time it could be you sitting in your laundry room. If you need help with your social media for business, give us a call. You can check out our website at smcventures.biz or visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn.
1: Have you ever wanted to try meditating, but were not sure how to start? Hi, I'm Jessica L. Conrad. I'm a certified life coach and a member of the ICF New Jersey. I help women at a crossroads in life find clarity and direction. I also work with women who are dealing with infertility and reproductive disorders. There are so many health and wellness benefits from a simple daily meditation practice. With all of our time at home currently, it's the perfect opportunity to be with yourself and reflect. Not sure where to start? Here are some tips. First, know that there is no good or bad meditation. It just requires commitment, patience, and practice. Get clear on why you are meditating. Then find the right time and place for your schedule. Dress comfortably, sit on a chair or the floor, and rest your hands on your lap or your knees. Start with just three to five minutes, then gradually add on from there. The main objective is to be more mindful, less distracted, and carry that on throughout your day. To learn more or to book a free call, please visit my website at jessicalconrad.com or you can follow me on Facebook at Jessica L. Conrad Life Coach.
5: Did you know that a person will walk an estimated 150,000 miles in his or her lifetime? That's roughly the equivalent of walking around the world six times. The feet take a lot of daily abuse from walking, running, jumping, and climbing. So naturally, they're subject to many different problems. Hi, I'm Dr. Anand Joshi, a podiatrist practicing in Woodland Park, New Jersey at Advanced Foot Care of NJ LLC. Here are a few tips to help you keep your feet in shape. Wear shoes that fit properly. This can help prevent worsening of deformities such as bunions and hammer toes, as well as prevent painful ingrown toenails from occurring. Keep your feet clean and dry. The most common cause of athlete's foot is having excessive moisture between the toes. Keeping your feet dry reduces the fungal load on your skin and helps prevent athlete's foot. Cut your toenails properly. Improperly trimming toenails can lead to painful ingrown toenails as well as skin infections. Protect your feet in public areas like showers and swimming pools. Plantar warts are commonly caused by walking barefoot in locker room showers as well as around swimming pools. Stretch the leg muscles daily. This will prevent stiffness from occurring in the joints of the foot and ankle. This can also increase blood flow to the soft tissues of the foot and ankle. Keeping your feet healthy is important if you're going to be able to go the distance. if you'd like more information or to schedule an appointment, please visit our website, footpainnj.com.
2: It's time for To Your Health. Joining us today is Dr. Jeffrey Weber, who's with the Laura and Isaac Perlmutter Cancer Center. Dr. Weber is here today to discuss melanoma. Dr. Weber, according to the American Cancer Society, an estimated 87,000 new cases of melanoma were diagnosed in the United States last year, and approximately 9,700 people died from the disease. What is melanoma, and whom does it affect?
0: Melanoma is a cancer of the pigment cells or melanocytes that live in our skin. They tend to cluster at the junction between the inner and the outer skin, which is the dermis and the epidermis and if they become transformed or abnormal and grow out of control they can then invade and if you get to them early and remove them when they're in the skin only you can cure the patient but if it spreads within the skin, deeply into the skin, or to distant organs, those patients may die of metastatic melanoma. And the patients most at risk are those who have pale complexions, a lot of freckles, especially those with a lot of abnormal freckles, and those with blonde hair, red hair, blue eyes, green eyes, who have been exposed to the sun or tanning salons. So most melanomas are probably due to UV exposure, that is the sun and the tanning salons. Some of them are genetically predisposed whether you're in the sun or not, but most of them are related to UV light.
2: Is melanoma more dangerous than other skin cancers?
0: That is correct. Most cancers of the skin in the United States and around the world are so-called basal and squamous cancers. You find them, you remove them, they're usually cured. The likelihood that they would spread percentage-wise would be very low, although that happens. It just doesn't happen often with melanoma. As you may have seen, uh, 90,000 this year, the incidence, the number of cases is 90,000 probably for 2018. This going to be about 10,000 deaths. So you have about uh, more than a 10%. It's an 11% chance of dying of the disease, whereas with other cancers, it's very low. It's 1% or less.
2: Doctor, what are symptoms of melanoma?
0: People should look in the skin at their moles and if they change and grow in size, become differentiated in color, if they become shaggy in their borders, if they're asymmetric, if they get raised or bleed, that's when you get worried and you have to go to the dermatologist for a biopsy, no question.
2: Doctor, thank you so much for being here. If you'd like to get more information, you can visit curemelanoma.org. The trick is to enjoy life. Don't wish away your days waiting for better ones ahead. I recently stumbled upon this quote by Marjorie Pay Hinckley. Marjorie's words got me to thinking about my life and how I've rushed most of it away, not being fully present or savoring the joy of any moment. Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my Ph.D. in life. Don't wish away your days waiting for better ones. When I was a teenager, I couldn't wait to grow up so I could drink or go to college or even get married. When my children were infants and toddlers, I muddled through most days in anticipation of the evening when they would go to sleep, and I thought about when they would be older and more self-sufficient. When I was the caregiver for my parents, I struggled through those years frazzled and exhausted. When I held job positions that were unfulfilling, I wished for the day that I would find employment that made me happy. Looking back, I can't recall one period in my life in which I wasn't looking ahead to something different or better. The sad thing is that it took tremendous loss to wake me up. The loss of my marriage, the deaths of my parents and siblings, my children growing up and moving on with their lives, now I strive to live in the present moment. All those quotes about leaving the past behind and not worrying about the future are so true. When you live in the past or try to anticipate the future, you miss the here and now. So what can you do? When you're dealing with a challenge, look for the positive and learn from the experience. If you're caring for a sick loved one, treasure every minute because I promise you one day you would give anything to nurse that person again. If your children are driving you crazy, remember that sooner than you'll like, they will be moving out and starting their own lives. All the seemingly insignificant moments, both good and bad, are, as Paul Anka said, the times of your life. Enjoy them all. Thank you for spending this time with me. For more inspiration and empowering tools, visit joanherman.com. Life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our coach call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Amy Collins, author of the book Infant Inspiration and creator of the online course Moms Courageous Women Raising the Next Generation. Amy promotes thoughtful conversations around motherhood. Her insightful perspectives look to empower mothers to own their role, clarify how it works best for them, and confidently express it. She's here today to discuss why it's important to discover who we are. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Joan. So, Amy, so many of us are in search of who we really are. You hear this so often. What do you mean when you say you need to be you?
8: Well, you know, Joan, especially in today's world, we live where people are constantly telling us what to do and how to act, who to be, what to look like. So what I mean is that we need to summon the courage to take off the mask. And that means really thinking about what our values are and role modeling how we put those values into play on an everyday basis. Because when we're able to be who we are, that's really when we're and really only when we're able to be truly content. And that's what we want to role model in life for our kids, too. We want to teach them how to be themselves. So then how do you suggest
2: people figure out who they are at heart?
8: First is embrace your vulnerability. Know that no one is perfect and embrace your quirks, right? When we embrace our quirks, especially as mothers, we're teaching our kids to embrace their quirks also. Second, I would highly recommend that people start to really pay attention. I think so many of us go through life and they're just on a nonstop hamster wheel. Now, of course, during this time of quarantine, we all had time to reflect. But did we take time to reflect on what choices we're making on a daily basis, right? What are we viewing on a daily basis? What are we saying? What are we listening to? Who are we spending time with? What books are we reading or newspapers? So really be mindful of how you're spending your time. And lastly, take the time to journal and write down answers to these types of questions, right? Write down on a daily basis who you spent your time with. Do they reflect your values as a whole? How did you spend your time with your family? Are you spending time with them in a way that works for you? Are you, you know, spending one-on-one time with your children? Write down what is working for you and what is not, because when you put it out on paper, oftentimes it's much easier then to read it and make connections.
2: How does all of this apply to motherhood?
8: When we live true to ourselves, then we're role modeling that behavior for our children. And we are raising the next generation, as I always say. And so we want to be really aware of what core values and beliefs that we're passing on to them. And not just through talking. What are our actions? How are we demonstrating our beliefs each day?
2: Amy, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Amy and her work, you can visit amymcollins.com. Social distancing slows the spread of
3: coronavirus, so stay a minimum of six feet away from others and stay home if you can. More info at coronavirus.gov. Brought to you by the Ad Council.
2: Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative change your attitude, change your life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now.